Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 340, Ancient Birthright. Let us start with George Abbott, pretty much as we ended last time in fact. Here he is, the lad, speaking of the situation in Bohemia whence had gone Frederick and Elizabeth Stuart. God had set up this prince, his majesty's son-in-law, as a mark of honour throughout all Christendom to propagate the gospel and protect the oppressed. Therefore, let not a noble son be forsaken for their sakes who regard nothing but their own ends. Our striking in will comfort the Bohemians, honour the elector Palatine, strengthen the princes of the Union, draw on the united provinces, stir up the King of Denmark to cast in their shares. Therefore, let our spirits be gathered up to animate this business that the world may take notice that we are awake when God calls. Thus spake on that holy man, the bright-eyed Archbishop. George Abbott was much towards the Calvinist end of the Protestant market, which had always been of great comfort to the Scots, actually. And you might notice a few things about this quote. This is God's work going on here. The hand of the Almighty was never far from the affairs of man in the 17th century. The appropriate response, as far as George was concerned, was most definitely war, but not war for the sake of pride or the honour of Elizabeth and the Stuart dynasty, but war as a crusade against Catholicism and oppression, a chance to gather all the forces of Protestant Europe in their defence. 
It is worth noting that this is rather reflective that all the forces of Catholicism were, at that time, gathering to do the very same thing the other way around. And with the Holy Roman Emperor, the Spanish Empire and the Pope altogether, it was really only religious fervour and the belief that God was, of course, a Protestant, that kept the confidence of the Protestant supporters for war high. That, and the hope, and expectation even, that James, the most Protestant monarch, would throw his weights into the scales on the Bohemian side. Everyone was talking about the Bohemian Rebellion. One Londoner remarked that he could not pass the streets, but I am continually stayed by one or other to know what news. An astrologer saw news in the comet later to be called Halley's that the House of Austria could not continue beyond 1623. A popular ballad circulated called Gallants to Bohemia, encouraging volunteers to fight for the cause. Here's a flavour. In fair Bohemia now is sprung a service which looked for long, where soldiers may their value try when cowards from the field will fly. It never shall of us be said that English captains stood afraid or such adventures would refrain. Then let us to the wars again. James, however, was resolutely gloomy. He knew he didn't have the cash to do anything. And anyway, nor was he convinced that it would be a righteous cause. The whole business rather persuaded him that Calvinist ministers and bishops were more trouble than the Arminians were, who displayed nothing like the same enthusiasm for this war. And so, he forbade all ministers to preach in support of Elizabeth and James in terms of their rebellion against the emperor. Many of his subjects wanted to celebrate it in traditional fashion, which generally involved lots of bonfires in the tinderbox that was Jacobean London, while they waited for their king to declare his support for Frederick, as surely he must. James exercised the full powers a curmudgeon open to him and allowed nothing of the sort and banned celebratory bonfires. The Spanish ambassador managed to get James to suspend Thomas Decker's play, The Whore of Babylon, because according to the ambassador, it was full of thousands of blasphemies against the Pope and Spain. The media filled up with sermons, pamphlets, manuscript letters and libels demanding intervention into war and also demanding the abandonment of the Spanish match. Much of the material was unlicensed, some of it published in the Netherlands and shipped over. People became confused by James's refusal to do any such thing as intervening and public opinion began to shift against him. What, you might ask, was Buckingham's attitude to all of this? It appears that initially, at least, Buckingham's attitude was exactly what you'd expect of a red-blooded early modern nobleman. War, it must surely be. Glory and praise. William Trumbull, again, said he'd heard from Buckingham the words that as he had received all he had from His Majesty's most gracious favour and bounty, so he was ready to spend it all in the cause of the King of Bohemia, wherein this kingdom had so great an interest. People beat a path to Buckingham's door, knowing that if they wanted to influence the king in this, he was the best route to him. 
Elizabeth wrote to him and sent her ambassador, Baron Dona, to court, but Buckingham was in the end his king's servant and his king's executor, not anybody else's. And he could see the way that the wind was blowing with James. The Venetian ambassador, for example, reported back of Baron Dona's following interview with James that the king continued to interrupt him, laying stress on the reasoning of the Austrians and denouncing the Bohemians' practice of dethroning kings and princes. People did not really understand, though. They thought that surely the king must make the right decision, and since he didn't appear to be doing so, it must be that he was being badly advised. So, who would be his closest adviser then? Ah, that'd be Buckingham. Libels appeared, condemning the nature of Buckingham's relationship with James. Quite unrepeatable on Family Show. Assuming this is a family show and that you are all dutifully lining up your small children in front of the wireless podcatcher each Sunday evening to listen in. You are doing that, aren't you? Some of the muttering was aimed at James specifically, though, and the stock of the Stuart sank further. The French ambassador wrote home of the hatred in which this king is held in free-speaking, cartoons, defamatory libels. James's strategy was more subtle than in simply declaring a war in which he neither believed nor for which he held out no hope of success. He saw himself as a peacemaker who would heal these rifts in Europe and bring universal peace. His strategy for doing this was the Spanish marriage of Charles to Maria Anna. Here's how the thinking went. He would use the glittering prospect of a marriage to a Stuart and future King of Britain to unite the Spanish with the British interest. He would then use the power, wealth and influence of Spain to hold back the hand of wrath of the Emperor and he would stand into the breach as a mediator between his son-in-law and the Empire. Let's be honest, from the start James was being super optimistic about the power of a marriage to bridge the fault line of the Reformation and Counter-Reformation and a centuries-long Spanish-French rivalry. However, there was to be an iron fist in the purple, diamond-encrusted velvet glove. Meanwhile, James would hold the threat of war over the heads of Catholic Europe, play-acting that if things didn't go his way, well, the full might, glory and unmatched puissant power of England would descend on the chaff like the ubiquitous storm. So watch out. To help this story, he ordered Buckingham to, to prepare a fleet of six ships, funding it, interestingly enough, through a ship money tax levied on London. I say interestingly because ship money will have a role to play in his son's story. Watch this space. So look, it's attractive, peacemaking thinking. Though to be honest, there were holes in the thinking. One of those holes, obviously, was that there were few Catholic diplomats who had much fear of the unmatched puissance of English arms. Nor also was it clear that Spain was even very enthusiastic about the idea of an English marriage anyway. The Venetian ambassador wrote home that James seemed to be acting against the grain of his councillor's advice too, and that the Spanish match was nothing but make-believe, and that Gondomar laughs about it with his intimates, rejoices at the gain of time, and boasts 
of having so far kept his majesty's hope buoyed up through his devices. Wotton was, was right, wasn't he? Diplomats, men in centre brought to lie for their country. Then, in autumn 1620, came dramatic news. Firstly, in September, the commander of a Spanish army, the brilliant Genoese Spinola, invaded the Palatinate, Frederick's ancestral lands, and quickly captured a series of towns. In November, Emperor Ferdinand's army of 27,000 crushed Frederick's Bohemian army of 15,000 in about mm, an hour. The idea of a Europe all brought to the Reformed religion in uniformity died at White Mountain. The consequences for Bohemia in their bid for freedom would be severe. The population of Bohemian lands would suffer a catastrophic crash as the Thirty Years' War rolled over them. The Bohemian constitution was cancelled by Ferdinand and a new one was introduced in 1627 which squished most of their freedoms, made German the equal of Czech as a language, removed most of the Protestant landowners and replaced them with Catholic outsiders and mercenary generals. The general population were converted to Catholicism by a combination of force and education with the help of the Jesuit order. Ferdinand carried on his way to try and restore uniform religion over all his lands with the Edict of Restitution in 1629. So to be honest, while the goodly archbishops talk of the second coming and good and evil bit seem a bit OTT, the bit about a war between Protestantism and Catholicism, despite modern scholarship, was really not that wide of the mark. It was the invasion of the Palatinate which hit James hardest. While he deeply disapproved of Frederick's support for a rebellion against an anointed monarch, Ferdinand was now in the process of doing the same thing right back. These were Frederick's hereditary lands. They could not rightfully be removed from him. The public debate, though, hit new levels of pottiness and fury. One Thomas Allared wrote an open letter which was widely copied and circulated, urging Buckingham to action, objecting furiously to the idea of a Spanish marriage and advocating the calling of a new parliament. Thomas finished his piece with the hope that his publication of honestly meant and constructive advice would not be seen as presumptuous. Whether he was right or not about his honest advice on the Spanish marriage is a matter for debate, but he was most certainly wrong about the last thing. James and his Privy Council definitely thought he was being presumptuous and chucked him into the fleet prison until he submitted an abject apology. Really sorry for being so presumptuous. Don't know what came over me. Send me the wedding present list for Charles and Maria Anna and I'll get right on it, sort of thing. Thomas Scott's Vox Populi took an even fiercer approach, though. It was a rather nice skit, essentially, pretending to be a secret document back home from Gondomar. It was, in effect, a scathing attack, not only on James's foreign policy, but on his policies for church and state generally. So the fake Gondomar in the letter mocks the English as being no match for the Spanish on the battlefield. It does a nice line in demonstrating the growing gap between the public view of court and parliament, since Gondomar says he'll fool James into not calling a parliament. But hey, even if it did, 
it could easily be packed with a body of men ready to betray their country and religion. He chuckled about the credulity of James in imagining a jumped-up little sub-king like him could arrange a marriage with the glory that was the Habsburgs of Spain and rejoiced in the negotiations as a cover for much intelligence and a means to obtain what I desire. So it pushed all the buttons then. People went wild with this piece of work. It went through seven editions in 1620 alone. Gondomar was absolutely furious. According to one person at court, he foams with wrath at every direction, which is, of course, the only possible direction when you're foaming. Thomas Scott did not wait for his invitation to visit the fleet. He jumped ships to the Netherlands straight away and went into hiding. But the thing is, he'd merely said out loud what many people were thinking. Lando, the Venetian ambassador, wrote home to report that as the invasion of the Palatinate news came through, the whole court is boiling with rage at the news. The French ambassador worried that the public reaction looked worryingly like the anteroom to civil war. Elizabeth wrote from exile to her father and also to Buckingham, and she pleaded Buckingham to persuade James to be a loving father to us and not suffer his children's inheritance away. The enemy will regard more his blows than his words. James begged leave to disagree with all of them still. Yes, he was outraged at the invasion of the Platinate, But no, he did not want to go to war. He wanted peace restored in Europe and the Palatinate restored to its rightful owner. And the road to peace was not at the end of a pike, as his daughter was suggesting. It was through the arts of diplomacy and the tradition cement reconciled enemies in marriage. So his reaction was just to add a few more decorations and embellishments to the house that was the Spanish marriage. You know, a breakfast bar, a big flat screen TV, a promise from Frederick to give up his claim to Bohemia, lying over the porch maybe, and for the Spanish to return the Palatinate in return for the mariage. In fact, the thing that really made him see red was all this public debate about something which was for the all-knowing king, not the common folk. Foreign policy was definitely not part of the list of things his subjects could discuss. That list was restricted to what's for supper and what new ways can we think of to praise the wisdom of our king. Again, the Venetian ambassador Lando reported James had wrathfully remarked that his people are becoming too republicanising. A royal proclamation was published at Christmas, essentially telling people to button their collective lips, telling them not to intermeddle by pen or by speech with causes of state and secrets of empire, either at home or abroad. He got the Dutch to issue a proclamation against seditious publications designed for export and again warned the clergy not to mention the Spanish match in their sermons. Nonetheless, James was no fool. He realised that he needed more leverage with the Spanish than a love of peace and the offer to fulfil love's young dream for a young prince and princess. And here, the public fury might well be useful. It allowed him to threaten that unless everyone came up with a deal, he might not be able to hold the English public and Parliament back. And indeed, there were English already fighting for Frederick's cause, 
James had blessed an army of 2,000 volunteers as they set off for the Palatinate under the experienced commander Henry Vere, with the Earl of Essex, interestingly, the man rejected by Francis Howard, you might remember, as his lieutenant. There was a further weakness with this plan, though. Gondomar knew full well that James was skint, and any army he could put together at the moment would probably be composed purely of the drummer boy. And indeed, how much of a threat to the Continental War was it anyway, even if he did somehow magic up an army? There were plenty in James's court who were hot for war, but for an Elizabethan-type war, blue-water strategy war. This said that rather than sending expensive armies to the continent to die of disease, why not attack the Habsburg colonies at sea instead? And of course, that would allow them to do a bit of innocent raiding, pillage and light trading on the side. Always worked in the past. But whatever. Skint, that was the thing. Didn't have two beans to rub together the lad. James then decided he simply had no choice but to take the nuclear option and call a parliament. Obviously, as far as he was concerned, calling a parliament was as pleasant as eating a cucumber, or even worse, if there is worse, which I seriously doubt, to be honest. But there was nothing for it. If he was to convince the Spanish that there was an iron fist in his velvety glove, spondulics were required. It was a tricky operation that faced him. He could generate the fury of the crowd, true enough to put as much wind up the Spanish as possible. But you know what these commoners are like. They do so easily forget themselves. So harnessing said fury and channelling it, now that was a challenge. They needed not to get above themselves and not to get involved in matters of strategy. Nor did they need to get involved in anti-Catholic invective because any deal with the Spanish would have to include something about toleration for Catholics nor should they fulminate against the Spanish match, because that would tie his hands completely. He needed them to just behave. Vote him a bag of cash, say a few bellicose things, and then go home, job done. Anyway, James didn't lack for confidence, luckily enough, so he was pretty sure he could manage the politics of it all. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, on the 30th of January 1621, as James set out to his newly called Parliament, the streets were absolutely rammed. Everyone was full of expectation and excitement. This would be called the glorious Parliament of 1621, the one where our King declared war on our enemies and the papacy and led us in the way of Gloriana and the great victories against the Spanish once more. Cry Jimmy and Harry! James took it all in his stride. Normally he absolutely hated crowds, especially when they should all be working and not taking an unnatural interest in matters of state or getting in the way of his hunting. But this time he smiled and waved. He waved 
and he smiled. He even stopped along the way to speak to his people, whereas normally, as the diarist Simmons Jews noted, he'd have bit a pox or plague on such as flocks to see him. Once inside, James tried to set the right tone with his opening speech. Francis Bacon had warned him that there was something of a head of steam building against overspending and corruption at court, and especially over the matter of monopolies. So, James went on at some length about all the money-saving reforms he'd made in household spending and the navy and things, all under the leadership of his eagle-eyed Steenie, which was a bit of a hoot because as far as the commons were concerned, rightly or wrongly, Buckingham had become the object of all suspicion as being the chief corrupter. But you know, you get your retaliation in early, as they say. Then James went on to lay down the rules with a bit of constitutional theory by way of reminding the commons of their place in life. Parliament was not the equal of kings because kings called parliament and they came when the king decided that they come. He needed money, but parliament was to keep its place and remember that it was a vain thing for a parliament to press to be popular. That's to say, no playing to the agenda of the proles. Thank you very much. There was much evidence at the 1621 Parliament of active government management. James was expecting trouble from Edward Cook, of course, with his pesky appeals to parliamentary privilege and precedent. And indeed, in his speech to the Lords, James sent a specific warning shot straight across his bows. For though Edward Cook be very busy and be called father of the law, and the Commons House have divers young lawyers in it, Yet all is not law that they say, and I could wish, nay, I have told Sir Edward Cook, that he should bring precedence from good king's times, not from the reigns of silly, weak kings. But in fact, he should also have been looking at our Edwin Sands, who was once more up to his tricks of managing affairs in the Commons. Sands spoke frequently, at least 22 times in the first two weeks of April and over 50 speeches in May. But his best work was as normal behind the scenes, not always in ways that James would object to, actually. So Sands was as keen as anyone to enable the king to fight for the Protestant cause and get him his money. And so he actually smoothed conflicts out of the way to get a quick vote of subsidies, initially of £140,000. But then things got nastier. The Commons turned its attention to corruption and fixed its teeth firmly into the body of monopolies, patents and referees. Let me explain that just a little bit. Monopolies are, as you would probably be aware, a lucky recipient having full rights and exclusive rights to sell a particular commodity, for which he could then charge whatever he liked. He was awarded said monopoly in return for a fee to the Crown. Patents gave the holder the right to regulate a particular trade, and of course this could be quite lucrative in fines if you found wrongdoing. Patentees were rewarded in return for a fee to the Crown. There's a theme there. Referees were the officials who signed off the applicants for a monopoly or patent. They were supposed to do the due diligence and give the winner good egg status, should they deserve it, of course. 
Well, obviously, this was a lovely, lucrative business for the Crown, and hey, you didn't need to get it approved by Parliament. But it had been a running sore with MPs since Elizabeth's day. Because, of course, the basic concept played to the idea of dodgy practice. The more you overcharged, the more you made. One particularly infamous patentee, Sir Giles Mompesson, had made a mint in fines by prosecuting over 3,000 innkeepers for legal violations. It turned out these violations were for ancient and obsolete irrelevant statutes, or sometimes he even set innkeepers up, entrapped them, essentially. People like Mompesson, declared one of the MPs, were bloodsuckers of the kingdom and vipers of the Commonwealth. Monopolies had a terrible impact on trade. Now, James was actually quite prepared to support the idea of legislating to clean up some of the worst excesses of monopolies. He had a politician's nose and saw this as an opportunity to smooth the way to further subsidies to pursue the war, since £140,000 was nubber to starter, really, in the war stakes. But there was a problem, and that problem wore extremely handsome-looking hose and was as beautiful as St Stephen. That'll be Buckingham, then. Because although Buckingham himself didn't have many monopolies, he'd made very sure his family and his clients did. So his enemies, quite convinced that Buckingham was not a reformer as he claimed, but instead the source of much of all this corruption, saw an opportunity to go for the throat and get some blood. Mompesson was the first in the firing line, with Edward Cook leading the search for the jugular. Cook was a bit of a one for history and declared that Empsom and Dudley were but fools to this projector. We all know about Empsom and Dudley, don't we? Anyway, Parliament got their man. Montpesson was duly dispatched and indeed was forced to leg it to escape, banished in perpetuity. But then next in the firing line might well be Buckingham. And so we get a delightful bit of theatre. James addressed the House of Lords, sung Steenie's praises and purity, and sternly informed everyone that if Steenie or anyone stepped out of line, he, James, would root them out. If he prove himself not a white crow, he shall be called a black crow. At this, Buckingham made a leg, fell to his knees in front of everyone in the Lords and declared, Sire, if I cannot clear myself of any aspersion or imputation cast upon me, I am contented to abide your majesty's censure and be called the black crow. Fantastic! There's little doubt that if George had failed as a favourite, he'd have found a job quick as you like at the Globe. It's entirely likely that James and Steeny cooked this up before the event, in fact. The message to the Lords was clear. Don't go after this one. He's mine. It was probably Edward Cook who identified who in the government would be made a scapegoat next. And in March, the person in the crosshairs was James's Chancellor, Francis Bacon. As Chancellor, Bacon often acted as a referee for monopolists and patentees. Montpesson had indeed been among them. But also Bacon was accused of taking bribes, specifically for accepting gifts from two suitors in a legal case. In vain, Bacon protested that the referee was not responsible for the crimes of the recipient of the award, in vain, he argued that giving of gifts was 
standard and would not affect his judgment. And to be fair, in this case, he'd actually made the judgment against the suitors who'd made the gifts. But Parliament wanted blood. Only James could save Francis's bacon now. Arf, and if you will, arf. Bacon was seriously ill by this stage, horrified by the turn of events and under enormous pressure. Obviously, he hoped the king would extend the hand of protection as he had to Buckingham. But there was no sign of this. And so Bacon appealed to Buckingham to win him James's help. But James had already decided that Bacon would have to be sacrificed. To get his man, Edward Cook revived a very old procedure, the process of impeachment, whereby a minister could be accused in the Commons and then tried in the Lords. You may or may not remember that the approach had first been used against William Latimer, the leech feeding on the enfeebled mind and body of Edward III at the Good Parliament of 1376. By the end of the 15th century, the process had fallen into disuse. But over a hundred years later, now, it was to have a new lease of life, and the first to be fed into its fire was Francis Bacon. But Bacon had no will to go through this process in the Lords, and so he just gave in. He admitted that he had accepted bribes and did not fight the case. He was sentenced by the Lords to be fined £40,000, imprisoned at the King's pleasure, and barred from court or Parliament. So, Buckingham and the King had both abandoned Bacon and thrown him to the wolves. Probably they both felt guilty, since he was soon released by James. He never quite lost the desire to play a political role again, but it was not to be, and instead devoted himself to writing. With a bit of luck, we'll be able to come back to him before he dies in 1626. But for the moment, we must square our shoulders, straighten our backs, and head back to the politics, and make our way to the protestation of 1621. So, looking at the scoreboard, James had managed to avoid a crisis with his favourite, un point, and jolly along Parliament, deux points. By May 1621, he could feel pleased about progress. He'd made a couple of subsidies all bagged up and ready to ship, and by professing himself well satisfied with the need to reform patents and monopolies, he hoped Parliament would vote him another subsidy. He needed a rather larger sum for his threat of war on Spain to be at all credible. In July, after Parliament was prorogued until autumn, he issued a proclamation cancelling 18 monopolies. So, Coolio, all on track, sweetness and light, let's go hunting. But then things hit choppier waters and Parliament began to wobble off their allotted course, as Parliament under James were rather wont to do and they introduced a bill for the better discovery and suppression of Catholics. Now, I guess this might not have been totally unexpected, but it was deeply unhelpful for James and his strategy for Spain. For that to succeed, he needed to be seen as the boy with his finger in the dike, stopping the flood of Commons' desire for war, but also to be seen as a man who could deliver Catholic toleration, if peace in Europe could be achieved. It may have been an impossible balancing act. Certainly, as paths go, it was very, very narrow, twisty and rocky. This bill, if passed, would make it look deeply unlikely he could deliver toleration in the event of a marriage to a Catholic princess. And Gondomar was predictably furious. What is the point, he demanded to know, of continuing negotiations 
if England was about to start persecuting Catholics again. Sir James tried to turn off the tap of Parliament, the very tap he'd turned on, and he immediately prorogued Parliament so everyone could go home and cool down for a while. In the Commons, Chins made contact with toecaps. And interestingly, many of them were basically worried about their constituents. The prospect of going back to their countries, having achieved almost nothing except vote subsidies, was not attractive. Sands went rushing around with others to dissuade the king for the adjournment, arranging for a petition. The royal response to this was indignant irritation. This was not the script, not the script at all. Such a petition would be a derogation of his privilege, and no one likes to be derogated. And he delivered a speech, possibly for Gondor's ears, wondering that, we rather expected... You should have given us thanks for the long maintaining of a settled peace in all dominions, when, as all our neighbours about are in miserable combinations of war. But before they left, with no visible evidence of being any more gruntled by the speech, the MPs passed a declaration for the recovery of the Palatinate, professing their willingness to go to war if diplomatic efforts were unsuccessful. James didn't leave it there. He hauled in Sands, had him questioned and slung in jail for a while, accusing him of trying to stitch things up with the Lords and his foreign policy views. He imprisoned the Earls of Southampton and Oxford for speaking out against the Spanish match. After that straight jab to the head, he followed up, as boxers do, with a quick cuddle. And then he cancelled those 18 monopolies as Parliament wanted, but followed up with a blow to the solar plexus reissuing his proclamation against MPs intermeddling in foreign policy that were the affairs of kings and kings only. The cobbler, he advised, should stick to his last. A declaration which required a good knowledge of boot manufacture in which matter the good MPs of Northampton would no doubt have been useful. Well, Despite being able to dispatch the parliamentary board to the boundary, the next few months were something of a disappointment for James. He'd hoped that having a subsidy in his wallet, however small, along with the threat of war from Parliament, would help things progress in negotiations for a Spanish marriage, but progress in Spain was glacial. So he tried a new approach, sending an ambassador to the emperor, Ferdinand II, to try and winkle out a commitment from him, that if Frederick agreed to give up his claims to Bohemia, then Ferdinand would return the Palatinate to him and not seek to punish the poor lad any further. The envoy, as a matter of interest, because he'll come up at the Spanish match conversation next time, was a chap called John Digby, the Earl of Bristol, and an experienced diplomat. He'd spent years in Spain as an ambassador, so he knew the lay of the land, but he wasn't an easy man. Edward Hyde, the Earl of Clarendon, famous historian of the civil wars, described him, though he was a man of great parts and a wise man, yet he had been for the most part single and by himself in business, which he managed with good sufficiency, and had lived little in consort, so that in council he was passionate and supercilious, and did not bear contradictions without much passion, and was too voluminous a discourser, so that he was not considered there with much respect. However, he was the man with the knowledge and was a favourite with the king, and so he was dispatched to the emperor. But by September 1621, he was back, and he was back with bad news, the worst. It was definitively a no 
from Ferdinand, Frederick would be toast as soon as the toasters, Spinola and Maximilian of Bavaria, had completed their tasks of subjecting the Palatinate to their control. It might be worth noting that anyway, Frederick would reject the idea of renouncing the Bohemian crown. There was a man who knew neither how to hold up, nor to fold up, or indeed when to run. Poor James. There was nothing for it, therefore, but to call Parliament back to their duty, to up the pressure on the Spanish. And in November, Parliament met again for a new session. Important though it was, neither James nor Buckingham were in evidence much, James liked to spend the autumn hunting in the east of England. So it was left to ministers to tell Parliament that their job was to deliver a subsidy to recover the Palatinate. That was all they were going to talk about, the Palatinate. Well, I have to say this put the House of Commons in something of a pother. And they pointed this out to Charles, the Prince of Wales, who was standing in for the King at Parliament. And he reported back to his dad, indeed, that the House had been a little unruly. To which we might remark, you ain't seen nothing yet, young Charlie boy, but sadly we're not there yet. The point is, though, that there were mixed messages flying around. I mean, after all, the King had issued two proclamations, as we've heard, telling the cobblers to stick to their lasts and not discuss matters of state. He'd slung people in jail for criticising the Spanish match. He'd also written a poem, had our King, bidding his subjects to hold your prattling, spare your pen, be honest and obedient men. Now, all of a sudden, they were supposed to discuss nothing else but the Palatinate, surely a matter of foreign policy only for kings. And there was another larger constitutional point here. What about the principle of parliamentary privilege? That MPs should have complete freedom of speech and expression to talk about whatever they wanted to talk about. Now this, asserted Parliament, was an ancient and immutable right. Not a point of view. James held it had to be said. Nothing ancient or immutable about it, given Parliaments came from the King. But the Commons believed it right enough and made clear their views. Nonetheless, they started to vote a subsidy in principle. So that is all good then, except not really. On the 29th of November, a chap called Sir George Goring threw his hat into the ring, and it was a flat-out of the Peaky Blinder construction, so including the presence of a razor blade in its leading edge. Goring proposed that the Commons should send a petition to the King to declare war on Spain if they did not withdraw from the Palatinate. I suppose that was fair enough, it played to the script. But once a parliamentary committee then got hold of George's words, they added the line that the Prince should marry one of our religion, i.e. not a Spanish princess. Why, George? Why? Goring was no revolutionary or mutineer, and yet he had really thrown poo onto the crown bowl's green. Why, oh why? There has been much debate about this, and at the moment the clever money has it that we see here the hand of Buckingham. Goring was well known as being a client of the Marquis. The idea is that Buckingham decided that if they were to get movement from the Spanish, they needed to turn up the thermostat to the seventh circle setting. And so he'd prompted George to put the original declaration forward, never imagining that they'd then add all that anti-Spanish marriage verbiage. If so, we can consign the tactic to the boob category.
because James went bananas. And we moved from Parliament to King working in partnership to, well, not. James gave Parliament a broadside, writing to the Speaker of the House, accusing them of debating matters far beyond their reach and capacities and instructing them not to speak of anything concerning government or the Spanish match. Edward Cook got involved amongst the members of the Commons, though Sands hadn't returned to Parliament as it happens. The Commons responded, protesting their innocence, that they'd merely wanted to put some ideas and information before the King that might not have come so fully and clearly to his knowledge, and also made the point about free speech again. Well... More blue touch paper had duly been ignited. James got in touch with the Speaker again, carefully removing his kid gloves before he did. He didn't need any advice from anyone, thank you very much. He accused them of claiming a plenipotentiary in all power upon earth, like the Pope and Puritan ministers in Scotland. He delivered a pretty clear threat and evidence of his views about the relative powers of King and Parliament. They should... Beware to trench upon the prerogative of the crown, or he'd act to retrench them of their privileges. The language is important. In evidence is his struggle with radical ministers of the Kirk in Scotland and the idea that a king had no role in the church, which fueled his views that Puritans were synonymous with rebels. Secondly, in evidence, was his view that parliamentary powers came not from the people but from the king. What a king had given, the king could take away. Free speech is not a right, pal, it's a privilege. The parliamentary response, cooked up with the active involvement of Edward of that name, was the protestation of the 18th of December 1621. I'm going to quote most of it because that's an important constitutional document, so pens poised and ready. Okay. It declared that the liberties, franchises, privileges and jurisdictions of Parliament are the ancient and undoubted birthright and inheritance of the subjects of England and that the arduous and urgent affairs concerning the King, State and the defence of the realm and of the Church of England and of the making and maintenance of laws redress of mischiefs and grievances which daily happen within this realm are proper subjects and matter of counsel and debate in Parliament, and that in the handling and proceeding of those businesses, every member of the House hath, and of right ought to have, freedom of speech to propound, treat, reason, and bring to conclusion the same, that the Commons in Parliament have like liberty and freedom to treat of those matters, in such order as their judgments shall seem fittest, and that every such member of said house hath like freedom from all impeachment, imprisonment and molestation, other than by censure of the house itself, for of concerning any bill, speaking, reasoning or declaring of any matter or matters touching the parliament or parliament business. There's a tiny bit more, but that's the guts of it. The Commons asserted their right to speak as they wished, of what they wished, and to be free of coercion by Crown or Government. It was not really an ancient birthright, as Cook claimed, really, or at least that claim was a bit dodgy, but of course, if accepted, would be one of the many baby steps that went towards the making of the modern constitution we now work under. James's head exploded. 
he immediately dissolved Parliament. On the 30th of December, his outrage still burning bright, he had the protestation torn out of the Commons Journal. Edward Cook was thrown into the tower, into a room that had once been a kitchen, funnily enough, so some wag had daubed the walls with the line, This room wants a cook. There's always room for a cheeky chappy somewhere. Interestingly, an MP called John Pym was also incarcerated for speaking against the Spanish match. We'll hear more of him in the future. James retired to his favourite house, Tibbalds, declaring that he would govern according to the good of the common wheel, but not according to the common will. Ha! That'll show them. How dare they! Ooh, but incidentally, he'd also set a torch to the paper of his Spanish strategy. He'd given up that second subsidy, which had not gone through the process yet. His plan to use Parliament to pressure the Spanish was doubly entoasted since they'd complained officially about a Spanish match and demanded more action against Catholics. As the fire of James's strategy paper burned high, you might have seen Gondomar, the Spanish ambassador, dancing in the light of the fire. He wrote home that the dissolution was the best news in a century for Spanish interests, removing any likelihood that England could launch meaningful military action on the continent. Oh dear, what on earth were they all to do now? That's all, folks. Next week I shall be discussing a different subject, a historical and a modern one, a bit on the beaten track, about common rights and rights of access, ancient and complex rights. It's a bit of indulgence, but I hope you'll find it interesting. And then we'll come back to how three people would deal with the challenge of a Spanish match. Three people who called each other Dad, Baby Charles and Steenie. Until then, thank you kindly for listening, for all your comments, reviews and so on. Good luck and have a great week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 